Welcome, everybody. Here we are. Uh, very, very, very honored. Very, very excited for this new series at the Chabura. I have to say, when we sent out the curriculum back in May, I think it was, uh, to promote the new membership series, one of the most consistent messages I got back from a lot of the members was how much they're looking forward to this series because it seems to be such an everyday topic that is relevant to our lives. We actually haven't, a lot of us anyway, haven't spent the time to understand the principles, the fundamentals of an element of our avodah that is, um, it's, it's so fundamental to our day-to-day life and we just take it for granted in many ways. So I'm very, very excited for this series on a personal note, and I know on behalf of everybody else here at the Chabura for this membership series on Hilchot Kashrut with the one and only Rabbi Yonatan Halevi. When we were thinking of who we should have for the Hilchot Kashrut series, it was actually very easy because um, Rabbi Yonatan Halevi has been leading the way in many ways in ensuring that we are able to understand the fundamentals of Kashrut, whether it's during the year on Pesach with the different forums that he's got, his amazing Shiviti organization, and always working tirelessly with Rabbanit Devorah Halevi and the Shiviti family to ensure that any Jew around the world has the tools to uh, honor Hilchot Kashrut um, in the, the, the way of our Hachamim generation. So uh, Rabbi Yonatan Halevi, we're very, very, very honored to have you here. And um, as I say, I, I, I'm so looking forward to this on a personal note. And uh, please, God, uh, may each uh, um, series that you're with us enrich us more and more. So, Rabbi, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sina. I really appreciate the warm introduction. And I know who to hire for my eulogy, Bezat Hashem, after 120 years. Uh, for right now, I just wanted to start off the shiul. Uh, there's Aska, I was told by Sina, Frecha uh, Batester and Evelyn Badlevana. Uh, whose your sites are near here, they ask It is always a pleasure to be here. I see so many familiar faces, and uh, I'm, I'm, it's an honor to be in the presence of this Chavura. Sina and Avi and the good work they do, and Rabbi Dweck, Halmid Barosh, who directs this entire operation. Uh, truly, I thank you for bringing me here. I have to tell you that very often when I go around to different communities and Batek Knesset and organizations to speak, I always get the following request. That is, Rabbi, you can speak about anything you want except for Kashrut. Please don't talk about it here. And so to be summoned here to speak about Kashrut is a testament to the open-mindedness of this Chavura. And I really, really appreciate being in company of people who, though we may not ultimately agree on everything, but we are agreeing to learn together things that are very important. As Sina correctly said, it's part of our Avodat Hashem. Kashrut, as menial as it might seem or mundane as it might seem, is truly part of our way in serving HaKadosh Baruch How I fell into that job, we'll talk about it at a different time, but for right now, I want to share with you. There was a comic I wanted to share. I'm not as brave as my Rabbanit, who she puts comics on her source sheets, but uh, there's a comic from Peanuts and it says, no one is going to give you the education that you need to overthrow them. And I think that that sentence is very important. That no one really is going to give you the education that you need to put them out of business, to put them out of control over your life. 
And I think that that's so much of what motivates me personally to talk about kashrut. And that is, if it were just any other area of halakha, where you can study and you can observe and you can do things the way you understand how they should be done, kashrut is a whole different world. Kashrut is a world in which there are a very select group of individuals who have made decisions for the entire Jewish community. And just for those who are writing me in the chat box, I'm not able to read the, the way my setup is. The chat box is very far away from me in the room. So if you want to say something, you're welcome to either say it or after the shoe, I will read through the chats and get back to everyone uh, personally. People's lives, their relations with their families, with their friends, everything is dictated by standards of kashrut that very often don't have anything to do with the Jewish legal text that we have before us and everything to do with social norms or communal norms and where there's value to social norms or communal norms. What I've noticed is that often Jewish people are enslaved to other people precisely because they were not educated properly in the laws of kashrut and they've delegated their thinking and their mind to someone else to make such decisions for them. In American history, there was a famous woman who freed many, many slaves in the United States. And she said, I freed 1,000 slaves and I would have freed 1,000 more if only they had known that they were slaves. And that is very true here. There's so much that we can do and we can teach and we can learn. But if we're not even aware in the first place that what we've been taught is incorrect, then we'll never have the freedom to explore. So what is correct? Because I still think that everything I learned until today was correct. And tonight's you. Knowledge is power is precisely that. This is an introduction. Today, you're not going to learn any practical halakot that you're going to walk away with. Yeah, we'll talk about many halakot, but I'm not going to teach you today about any one topic over the other. Today is just going to be an exploration of the laws of kashrut that are scattered throughout the Shulchan Aruch. And to say, are these the laws of kashrut because they're printed black on white on paper? Or are the laws of kashrut the things that we've heard so many years over from other people that clearly don't fit with the text that we're about to read together. When I lived in Yerushalayim, David HaMelech says, Our feet used to stand in your gates, Yerushalayim. I, I regret to tell you that I live here in San Diego and I regret every moment, but every moment that I'm not Yerushalayim. And not just Yerushalayim. I lived in the old city of Yerushalayim. My office, the view from my office was the Kotel, the Western Wall. And I had Arab Peretz, Mori Harab, to talk with all day and all night. One time I was sitting with Arab Peretz, and our building at the time, we were in this Benamidash. And underneath us, there was an empty room. And they would rent it out to this Hasidic uh, school. Uh, school children, maybe five years old to ten years old, maybe even younger. And these kids would be there, and, and we always joked, they didn't have televisions at home. So for them to get some kind of entertainment, they would walk upstairs to Sephardic Kishina and they would watch Sephardic people. And for them, I guess that was like entertainment. And they see all kinds of people dressed in all kinds of ways. They never saw people dressed before or eat all kinds of things. They never saw people eat before. And there were a lot of little children running around the Benamidash that had nothing to do with what we were doing upstairs. And one of those moments, there was an American tourist who came to the yeshiva and he had handed out lollipops to all these little children. And these children were holding these candies. They were so excited, someone brought them candy. But what was the problem? The candies came from America and they had no idea if they were kasher. So, like good children, they walked over to the Rosh Hashimah, Harapiratu in the middle, teaching us the laws of Tavuvot, of Kashrut and Harapiratu, into the middle of his class. He interrupts us, yes, my son, what can I help you with? And he says in this tiny little voice, maybe he was five years old, he says, Rabbi, we just got this lollipop from that guy. Is the lollipop kasher? And Harapiratu smiled at him 
And he said, my son, of course it's kasher. Of course it's kasher. He didn't look at a lot of kasher. Of course it's kasher. And he sent him away. And the guys in the class, you know, we're all learning here, and meat and milk and all these mysteries of forbidden. No, well, you know, I'll these at the lollipop. And the guy said, Rabbi, you didn't even take a look at the lollipop. I said, imagine for a moment, what could possibly be inside of a lollipop that is not kasher? Are they putting, are they jackwards? Are they putting pilim? Are there elephants in that lollipop? Are there monkeys, kofim, in that lollipop? What could be in the lollipop? He sent them on his way. And here I learned two things. One, I learned the bravery of Jewish children. The discipline that Jewish children have. You live in a world, you and I both live in a world, which we read stories every day. You wake up, you open the newspaper, you read the news, and you hear this person did that, and they stole from here, and they did this, and... In the world that we're in right now, I don't wish to elaborate, but people are touching people that are not theirs and in the workplace and in Hollywood. And, it, and people have no understanding in the world of what discipline is. Discipline yourself. She has nothing to do with you. She wants nothing to do with you. Why are your hands on her? That's not your money. Why are you stealing it from other people? This is not your, fill in the blank. We live in a world where people have no boundaries. And here I have a tiny Jewish child who wakes up in the morning and he says, Thank you, HaKadosh Baruch for creating me. Now, like every other child in the world, he wakes up, but he's hungry. He's thirsty. He wants to eat. He wants to drink. But he's old enough already to know that before he eats and drinks, he has to pray to HaKadosh Baruch So he washes his hands, goes to the bathroom, goes downstairs, gets dressed. You have to dress before you pray. He says that tefillah, and now he's really hungry, but that's just half an hour in. He's finished the do. Now he wants to go eat. And what does a little Jewish boy or girl do? They come to the table. Hmm. I want to have a sandwich. I have to go wash my hands again and say hamotzi and eat the food. And then afterwards, all of that thought goes into having my breakfast in the morning. When my child checks out of the grocery store, and I'm sure in the United Kingdom, it's like the United States. They have all these candies right at the checkout aisle. And my children, they want every single one of them. And they take one to Abba if I say no, I could abuse this authority. I'm not going to tell you if I abuse this authority. I could abuse my authority and say, no, it's not kasher. My child, no matter how much they want that candy, will put it back on the shelf and walk out of the store. The discipline that halakha gives our everyday life is a gift that when we get older, I'm sure there are people who have been disciplined in halakha but have no discipline elsewhere. I'm not saying otherwise. But the discipline that kashrut, particularly decisions every moment of your life, can I eat this? Can I not eat this? How do I eat this? Where do I eat this? From where does it come from? Where is it? All of those questions. There are people that say on, they start diets. Someone said, my three-month diet, I'm so good at it that I finished it in three days. Everybody starts a diet. Everyone's on this diet and the next diet. And I have students in the workplace and they bring pepperoni pizza to work. Can't you just skip your kosher diet for one day? How do they understand that I haven't skipped my kosher diet in 40 years, 50 years, 70 years, 10 years? What do you mean skip it for a day? I don't have in my mind that thing, I sign up for a diet and two days later I'm done. That discipline is a gift. And I in no way intend to turn the laws of kashrut into hefkeut, into free-for-all chaos. But the other thing that I learned from that story with the lollipop was that kashrut is not so difficult. This whole what if and what if and maybe that, maybe that, and all of that mentality that surrounds modern Judaism's kashrut, all of that didn't exist in the world of our Chachamim that are still alive today. Forget the ones of the last generation. Mori Harav doesn't live in a world like that. And that's the style of Kashrut that I wish to share with you in today's show. In fact, when I began learning for Hasmachah, 
as a rabbi in Harav Peretz's yeshiva, we began with Tarubot. Why? It's upside down. That's okay. That's how it came in. In the beginning of Tarubot, Harav Peretz said, like any good professor will tell you, the goal of their class. There's a syllabus. So we're going to study the laws of Milicha and Basad al-Khalaf and Tarubot this year. My goal is that if any person truly mastered the laws of Shulchan Aruch, the laws of Kashrut, you will be able to go in any time, in any place, into any non-Jewish person's home and use their pots and their pans and their cooking utensils, their ovens, their stovetops, and the ingredients from their refrigerator and create for yourself a completely kasher meal. And if you can't do that, it's because you don't know the laws of Kashrut well. And I don't elude myself to think that in eight weeks we can cover what took us years to study. But I wish at least to give you a taste. A taste of the freedom. Our rabbis tell us that the Ten Commandments were charut and halukot. They were engraved into the tablets. And our chachamim say, al charut charut. Don't read that they were engraved. Read freedom. The Ten Commandments give us freedom. Freedom from the oppression of other people who use halakha to control and manipulate our lives our families, and our communities. And so that's my mission statement. And with that in mind, I want to learn with you a little bit of the sources that I've shared with you today. And there's a PDF. I think there's a link going around in the chat box. If you don't have it, you can privately message Sina. I believe he has it for sure. Don't be afraid of the Hebrew. Anything you need to know, I'm going to translate with you today. The first source that I brought is from Avot to Dilbirata. Now, these sources I collected many, many years ago, and I added some things and changed some things. And, Let's look at them together. Rabbi Yitzchak ben Pinchas Omer. Rabbi Yitzchak, the son of Pinchas says, Kol nish yesh biyado midrash ve'en biyado halakot. Anyone who has midrash but does not have in their hands the study of halakha, lo ta'am ta'am shal chukma. Has never tasted the taste of wisdom. And the other way is also true. Kol nish yesh biyado halakot the midrash, anyone who has halakha in their hands but does not have midrash, meaning they're unbalanced in a different direction. Lotam, Lotam, has never tasted the taste of fear of sin. He would always say, Anybody who has midrash but does not have halakha, that person is like a warrior who has no weapons, a brave warrior with no weapons. Anyone who has halakha but does not have midrash, he is a weak person who's holding a weapon. And if you have both of them, you are both a brave warrior and an armed warrior. This chavurah is unique and that it doesn't just teach halakha. You have the opportunity to study machshava, to study Tanakh, to study Talmud, to study all kinds of things. This well-roundedness is crucial in a person's Jewish education. But one shouldn't underestimate the power of halakha. At the end of the day, halakha is the weapon. Halakha is what we have. At the end of the day, push comes to shove. A weak person in battle with a weapon will get much farther than a person who is strong but has no weapons. You need both. And today, we're focusing, therefore, on halakha. The Gemara Masechet Brachot in Source 2 says, My dikhtiv, what does it mean at Tehilim? King David says, That HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves the gates of Zion more than he loves the sanctuaries of Yaakov. HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves the gates of Zion more than he loves the sanctuaries of Yaakov. 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu prefers the gates that are experts in halakha more than any other of the synagogues and study houses of the Jewish people. Halakha is a primary focus of Am Yisrael. And there's another saying from Rabbi Chia Barami in the name of Una, Miyom from the day the Bet Midas was destroyed, we have nothing, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has nothing left in the world except for the places where people study Halakha. Halakha is where HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, finds himself in a post-destruction reality. There's a source here, source number three. I was debating whether I should leave it in. Is anyone familiar with Shalot and Chubot Min Don't tell me anything about Shalot and Chubot Min Don't be afraid to admit yourself, it's okay. Okay, I'll tell you. Shalom B'Chavot is a book whose authorship is, is under tremendous question. According to the story, this is a book of Teshuvot that came from a Chacham, I'm going to skip names right now, who every night before he went to bed, they say it's from the Rosh. Every night before he went to bed, he would write a letter to the Bedin Shalmana and a question the halakha, and he would wake up and he received an answer in a dream of the halakhot, and he wrote a book, Shalot Tzuvot, Questions and Answers, Min Likely, this book was not written not by Rishon, not even by Nachon, but one of the early maskinim, one of the early rabbis of the Enlightenment movement, and wrote this book, and therefore the stance on the Ben Midrash is, if it says something that agrees with the rest of halakha, fine, you bring it as a supporting source. And if it has a unique position that is not grounded in halakha, you ignore this as if it was not written by anybody, let alone Arishon. Here, he writes an important idea that even on Chol HaMoyed, when you're not supposed to write, it's permissible to write down Chidushim and Halakha, because Halakha is so important that it could even violate the laws of Chol HaMoyed in order to write down ideas of Halakha. The Rambam in Source 4, when he tells us that a person has to learn what's the daily regimen of a person, the Rambam in the laws of Talmud Torah, the first chapter, says Source 4, Right after the Rambam has told us how long does a person have to study Torah until what age? It's until the day a person dies. Now, you have to tell you what's the daily learning regimen. You have to break up your learning into three parts. A third in the written law, in the Torah. And a third in the oral law. A person has an obligation to learn the things in the written Torah and the oral Torah in such a way to compare and to contrast and to use the sources and analyze them until a person knows the ta'asur with amutav what is forbidden and what is permitted. And this is called, in the Rambam's world, Gemara. I would argue that in today's world, this is called Halakha. And most people who are studying Gemara are actually not studying anything practical, but it's everything aside from the conclusion of what to do. The Rambam then tells you how long the person has to study Torah. So let's say us simple people who have jobs. No, I mean, we have to work for a living. What do we do? It's yes. Ketad. How does it work? If a person had a profession, and what is a regular working person? They work three hours a day, says the Rambam, and you study Torah nine hours out of the day. Of course, like all of us here, that's how we learn. 
we work three hours and we study Torah nine hours a day. So if you have an extra nine hours, what can you do? You only have nine hours. You split up the three into three parts and the Gambam tells you exactly the disciplines he said before. You study them three parts until you reach a certain level of scholarship and then perhaps you're able to change your daily regimen. In source number five, Maran quotes almost verbatim, maybe even verbatim, the same exactly, exactly the way that a person is supposed to study Torah. On the notes in the Shulchan Aruch, there's a famous Ashkenazi Chacham. His name is the Shach, after the book Sifte Kohen. The Shach writes the following commentary on how much Torah person must study every day. And he says, Katava Derisha, the Derisha says, the Derisha is also a famous Ashkenazi rabbi. His wife or his mother, I don't recall right now, she wrote Chidushe Torah. We have halakhot uh, that we learned from his wife or his mother uh, for another class, a different time. Yes, There are some lay people that I know, says the Gapat. They learn every day Gapat. What is Gapat? That's the standard way in which Ashkenazim Nazim learned Talmud. Gemara, Rashi, Tosafot. Yes, a person who learns every day Gapat. And they don't study the writings of the poskim. That you must learn the writings of halakha. Dinei ha-Torah, the laws of the Torah. Kmoharif, umordechai, the harosh, again, this is written in Ashkenaz. So he's telling you the pillars of halakha that are in Ashkenaz. The rif and the mordechai and the rosh. Vedomehen, and those books that are similar to them. Dezehu shoresh ve'ikar letoratenu, because that is the whole root of our Torah, is halakha. What are we supposed to do? Ve'enam yotzim kalal belimud gemarab tarush tosam. This is the something fascinating. A person who has three or four hours a day to learn Torah, I'll in a moment. A person who has limited time to learn Torah, and they spend their whole day studying Gemara, Rashi, Tosafot, says the Derisha, that person has not fulfilled even the minimum obligation of Torah study. They receive no reward for studying Torah. What about all of the Yeshivot that you know of today in the world that all they study is Gemara? I don't know what to tell you about that. Halakha, they certainly don't know. Uh, forget Midrashim and Tanakh. Tanakh is really, that's a heresy to suggest that people should know what the Kurs Ruchu said. But, but all they learn is Gemara. Says the Derisha, they don't fulfill the obligation of learning Torah. And right towards the end, he says, They only have three or four hours a day to learn Torah. How much more so if you only have less than that? They only have three or four hours a day to learn Torah. They're not allowed to only study Talmud. They must study Halakot. How can you learn Torah but not have any practical application of that Torah into your life? I quote here in source seven from Chacham Yosef and Avshalom. There's commentary from Avot. He writes that nowadays in our generation, if you have three hours a day, you are, must spend three hours a day studying the Bet Yosef, the Shulchan Aruch, and all the commentaries to know practically how to observe Halakha. And if you see in the second paragraph in source seven, he writes, "Uvizmaneno hadaf yomi." Because those who learn Gemara, Rashi, Tosafot are the equivalent of those who study Daf Yomi today. I don't mean to pour any cold water on anyone who's studying Daf Yomi. You doing Daf Yomi? Good for you. I'm not just add halakha to it. But says Chaim Yosef, a person who studies just Daf Yomi 
didn't fulfill their obligation of Limud Torah at all. At all. It doesn't mean a little bit. At all. Maran in the Shulchan Aruch, Halacha 8, he writes that if there's a community that needs both a Chazan and a Rabbi, and they only have funds to hire one of them, who should they hire? A Chazan or a Rabbi? Chazan, Chazan. A Chazan, very good. Maran writes, unless the Rabbi is Gadol Batorah, unless he is a giant in Torah who knows how to rule Halachot, you, the preference is to hire a Chazan instead of a Rabbi. What good is a Rabbi who doesn't know Halachot? Every Rabbi, I remember as a child growing up, you asked a Rabbi, but oh, I'm not a postage, I don't answer. If you're not a postage, you don't know how to rule Halachot. So what are you busy being a Rabbi for? What is, what is your job? You're an unlicensed social worker. I know, but my wife is a licensed social worker. Why do you have to be an unlicensed social worker? What is your job in the world? To make movie night in the Berek Nesset? What's your job? Your job is to know halachot. Your job is to teach people halachot. What is halachot? Not, it's better if, maybe not, halachot are clear teachings. They're laws. That's your job. If you don't know them, says Maran, don't hire such a rabbi. Just hire a chazan instead. Chazan has a nice voice. He'll sing have an agila with everybody. They'll all dance around. They'll be happy. They'll love a chazan. But who? That's better than having a rabbi who doesn't know halachot. Rabbi Yonatan Aitchitz, Alam Shalom, Yonatan Aitchitz, was attacked for being a Sabbatean by Rabbi Yaakov Emdin. Rabbi Yonatan Aitchitz, my soft spot for him is not that he shares my name. He happens to be my wife's great, great, great grandfather. My wife is a descendant of Rabbi Yonatan Aitchitz. And he writes that a person who doesn't learn halachot, for example, his Chochamah, there's no way in the world that a person can consider themselves observant of halachot, observant of Shabbat, if they've never studied the laws of Shabbat before. There's no way that you can observe something you don't know. I'm a lawyer. I never studied law. I'm a doctor. I never went to medical school. I'm an observant Jew. I keep kosher in Shabbat, but I don't never study my life the laws of Kashrut and Shabbat. People come ask me, oh, you're, you're the rabbi who said, I said, listen, I'm happy to have a conversation with you about Halakha. I did say that about Kashrut. Can you tell me? I'm not asking you about, can you tell me where in the Shulchan Aruch are the laws of Kashrut found? You don't know what, I'm not asking about the chapter, I'm just telling where? Could you read for me any of the laws of Kashrut? So who gave you the right to have an opinion on something you know nothing about? How dare you even consider yourself observant of halakhot that you don't know? I once had a rabbi here call me about our view. How could it be? Conversion? I said, Rabbi, I would love to have a conversation. We could learn halakha. Let's take out a shulchan and the laws of conversion. The rabbi said, Rabbi, I don't even own a shulchan on the laws of conversion. What does someone expect to say about that? I, I was I was flabbergasted. I don't know what to say. You don't know the laws of you, but you have an opinion on conversions? How? In which reality does it make sense? You cannot consider yourself observant of a halakha that you have never studied before. And that's why all of you are here. And when you study halakha here together, don't worry about what are those people going to say. Those people aren't here today. Those people haven't cranked open a yoreda. They haven't opened the rambam, they've never sat on sugyot and chulin and abu dazara. So what did you why do you have to answer anything to them? The Gaon Milisa, also a famous Ashkenazi Khan, who writes that he knows of many Talmudic Khamim who know so much Talmud and they're so sharp and they're cool cool, but they don't know any halakhot. This is nothing. And he says, certainly they come to violation of Shabbat. Here's one of my favorite sources, Rabbeinu Bachit. And you know, there's two Rabbeinu Bachit. Someone tell me who they are. Bon Sefaradi, Bahia ben Pakuda, and then Bahia ben Asher, the Ashkenazi. 
Okay, and, and what's different, as I mentioned, from, what's different in their mentalities, by the way? Are you sure? He's just different. He's not, he's not a, he's famously not a Maimonidian, if we had to put it that way, but I wouldn't go so far as to label him an Ashkenazi. I'm not sure. Bakib was in Spain. Yeah, it was in Spain. I think the 14th that's century, true. I think. That's what I recall as well. So here, Rabbeinu Bakhi, I'm talking about Yes. He writes, and Lama's an introduction, a book that, that used to be studied in, in all of our books. And today, I think people don't even know where to find this book on the shelf. Haraferetz told me that his father in Morocco, the rabbis in the city they lived, used to have chavutot with the, the Muslim imams, the sheikhs. They would study with them, Chobad al They knew, the Muslims knew, that if they wanted to become Yishalim, straightforward, honest, righteous people, they had a tradition that they had to study the writings of Rabbi Bakhi in Chobad al And the rabbis would oblige them by learning it with them in the Vedakrasi. One of the Chachamim was asked, In the Shiyu he was teaching, someone asked him, What is a Shailan A foreign question, meaning a theoretical question. A question that wasn't, had no practical ramification. And he responded to his students, You're asking me about something that will not hurt you if you never study it. People like to go to all kinds of shiurim. What's going to happen to the animals after Tchiyat HaMetim? I, I don't know. What, what does it make a difference? The ten sefirot and the crowns of the... I, listen, you want to be in the Kumal, you can, but you first have to know what it says inside of the Kumal. Learn, learn a little bit. What are you learning things that have no practical ramifications to your, to your life? Do you know everything you need to know about mitzvot? the ones that you're not allowed to neglect, then you have no uh, permission to, to uh, transgress them. Now your mind is so free to think about these things that are purely theoretical. That's what you have. The things that you are studying will not give you any value in your observance of mitzvot, nor in your belief in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And not only that, they won't even fix any of their character traits which are afflicted in your soul. Do you have enough free time in your life to ask questions about the things that are not relevant? This is a classic Sephardic Chetan. Today you would consider him a bad teacher, right? It's shaming his student in public. Right? He has to be open-minded. Chacham also has to teach his students what he has to learn. That's part of his job. I swear, says Chacham. It's 35 years that I've spent my days and my nights in the halachot that I need to know of our Torah. You know how much time I spend studying Torah. How many books I have. And I have never had a spare moment in my life to ask such a question like the one that you asked. And the uh, Ben Abachi says, and he continued to embarrass him and denigrate him in the shiur for asking a theoretical question. Now, this is not the way in which I would treat anybody here who asks any questions, so please don't be afraid to ask questions. But it tells you that among our chachamim, what was important to study? The things that are relevant to your everyday life. And it can't be that we're studying all kinds of theoretical ideas. When it comes to something that we do every day, like kashul, we don't, we've never sat down to study these things inside. The Miri. Miri is one of my favorite chachamim. The Midi writes here, I have seen Torah scholars, who are experts in Talmud. 
and they don't know how to rule one halachic question. Especially, uh, even the ones that they should know how to rule. Our parents ends right here in the brackets. They're experts in Talmud, but they don't know any halakha. Because they don't study halakha at all. Like the custom of the Chachamim of our generation. They know a lot of things, but halakha is not one of the things they know. And says the How many of them are considered to be experts in Torah? When it comes to halakhic questions, they have to answer. They don't even know the doorway in which to enter to find the answer for the question. This is exactly the generation that you and I are living in right now. Unfortunately, this is the truth. I spent many years in Yeshiva, in which you could ask a rabbi any question about Rabbi Akiva Igor and a brisk rub and a machloket of the rugged shavar gaon, but you ask them a simple question, how to wash your hands, in the morning, they wouldn't even know how to analyze the question that you're asking. Because that's the world in which we are currently living. And the Ramah, not purely a Sephardic philosophy, the Ramah writes that nowadays, the main job of a rabbi is not to know the pimpulim and the chidukim. You know, Amma is a very special person. In my opinion, he's an underrated Ashkenazi chacham. In the Ben Milash of Moriah Peretz, we spend, we give significant respect to the Amma, even though we most of the time don't agree with him. The Amma starts off his notes on the Shulchan Aruch with Moren Bukhim. Something, he's, he's starting off the Ashkenazi commentary in Shulchan Aruch with Rabbi Ramba. Here he's telling you, the main job of the Rabbanut is not what you see all the rabbis who are involved in Tifunim doing now. Rather, someone who knows how to accurately analyze halachot and reach truthful halachic conclusions. Another quote here from the Righteous that if a person doesn't know Shukhan they'll ultimately end up dying without any wisdom. But for right now, I find myself on page three to summarize everything I said until now. Halakha is of utmost importance to study. In my opinion, the reason why so many avoid it is because halakhot are, halakha is the area of Judaism that when you know it well, it empowers you to do things that you no longer live in a society where everyone else tells you what to do. And because of that, the liberating experience of learning halakha, uh, oftentimes the study of halakha is discouraged. Halakhot are only allowed to be studied by very select individuals and in ivory towers, only they are allowed to have opinions on halakhot, only they can rule halakhot, you have no right in the world to learn halakhot. This mentality that already has become the mainstream of Judaism as I see it today. And really what set the Sephardi communities apart in the understanding that the codes of law that were written by the Rambam and Marana Shukhanaruch were written for the average person to not need to have dependency on rabbis or other people in order to know how to observe halakhot properly. We are, the Torah is an inheritance of ours. It's not that certain people inherited the Torah and then we get to eat the crumbs from their table. That story of eating crumbs from the table is in the New Testament. It's not in our Torah. We have a right to know the Torah. We have a right to own our Torah. And as I said in the beginning of the Shiur, the only way you can truly believe that you have a right to be free is to look at a few halakhot and to ask, all of the Judaism that I've been taught until today, all of the rules of Kashrut, the standards of Kashrut, the protocols and the policies, do any of them match what you're about to read on pages three and four?
And I want you, every single halakha that we read together, stop and say, would the rabbi that I studied the laws of Kashrut with ever tell me this and allow me to follow it in public? When I was studying, I started learning Shukhan Aruch in Baltimore. It was the end. I was enough for people. I didn't want to stay in Yishima anymore. I really wanted to go to Israel. I had to finish the semester for college credits and everything else that came along with it. And so I, I got permission to join this uh, group of people who study Shulchan Aruch. And every single halakha they said, every, uh, the Rosh Kolel who would teach would say, yes, that's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. Yes, the Ramah agrees. Don't do it at home. Don't do it at home. Why should I do it at home? Ah, it'll make your wife very upset. Why should I make my wife upset? If I tell her that's what it says in the halakha, well, I should be upset. Oh, it'll make your mother, your father-in-law, your rabbi. If my rabbi gets upset when I learn Torah, then why, why is he my rabbi? And very quickly I decided, anyways, I have to go. And I left and Baruch Hashem, I ended up where I ended up. Let's look together on page three. Hacham, can we ask a question from someone in the room? Please, right? of course. Yeah, of course. Doesn't, doesn't Shulchan Aruch himself say in his introduction that if there's a so-called minhag, um, which contradicts what he writes, then one should follow that. So maybe those rabbis are, are believe that they're following that minhag. Fine. Uh, I, I, I dealt with minhagim and, and Shulchan Aruch in my Shulim al Maran. Uh, yes. If a person will tell me the reason why I don't do something is because I have a different source that tells me something else, fine. But at the very least, you shouldn't stop me from doing what's written inside of the Shulchan Yes? You shouldn't say about me that I don't observe the laws of Kashrut, that I don't keep Shabbat. And that's not what happens. Nobody ever says, oh, that family, they only keep halakha like Maran. It's okay to eat in their house. They'll tell you, oh, it's, we don't recommend you eating in that, that children's birthday party. We don't let you go. That's it. We know how that works. And so it's not a matter of, of a person having a minhag or something else. And normally when Maran is talking about minhagim, there are a few areas that I can think of in halakha where the minhag supersedes when Maran is writing. Uh, but not anywhere that I'm being concerned with here. It's a good question. But I, like I said, the, the truth is in how they answer the question. Thank you. Yeah. If, when he became the rabbi in Petah Tidma or Tel Aviv, one of the two, I, don't know. I think it was Tel Aviv. They used to put out in the Rabbanut this pamphlet every year that talked about Kitniyot on Pesach. And it was like a regular, you know, those kosher pamphlets. I'm sure they have them in our grocery stores before Pesach. I'm sure you have a, a version of that in the UK. And then that pamphlet, used to, it says that Kitniyot are forbidden to be consumed on Pesach. And some Sephardim are lenient and have a custom that they eat Kitniyot on Pesach. And Hamadeh Yosef, he stopped the printing of those booklets. And he said, listen, you're not able to print those books until you write it correctly. That's not the truth. The truth is, the Torah permits us to eat Kinyot on Pesach. Some Ashkenazim have developed a custom that prohibit them from eating Kinyot on Pesach. Unless you write it that way, don't tell me that you... This is exactly what I'm talking about. I, I respect anybody who wants to follow a stringency of the Ramah. Or something. Do I really respect them? Fine. But, but I respect them. But at the very least, don't say that the people who don't do that are somehow negligent in the laws of Kashul. Maybe some of us prefer to focus on other halakhot, like not speaking Hashem Hara, or uh, not murdering our friends in public, or, or such things that are of a, a little more important nature than jelly beans or the like. Today, in the morning, I woke up, someone sent me a message. There was a thread in, a, in an Israeli Facebook group that I'm a part of. Somebody's looking for frozen raspberries. Where do you find frozen raspberries? 
Today, you want to buy a frozen raspberry. Where do you go buy a frozen raspberry? You want to make a smoothie at all? In the freezer section of a supermarket. Very good. In the freezer section of a supermarket. Here, this person is saying they've been looking, and it's been almost two years. Two years since they found frozen raspberries in an Israeli grocery store. Says, listen, are you only checking maybe the Haredi neighborhood? No, I live in a regular neighborhood in Israel. It turns out that a couple of years ago, the chief rabbi had changed their protocols. Yes, so halakha has changed. And raspberries are no longer kosher. And because of that, they refuse to certify anything that has real raspberries inside of it. So there's no more raspberry jam, no more raspberry spreads, no more ras- frozen raspberries. They're not taking responsibility for this not kosher food that is known as a raspberry. These things happen all the time. The certain agencies will decide for you what is kasher and not kasher, and then boom, overnight, something that was permissible yesterday, today already became uh, forbidden, and you can't even find it in the grocery store. They have, by the way, they found, just so in case you're worried, you want to make aliyah, and you need raspberries, and you're afraid how to you get raspberries in Israel, they have uh, these uh, stores that they serve the communities in Israel that don't keep kasher. They sell pig and things like that there, and they have freeze-dried raspberries, and when they posted the price, I don't know what it's like in the United States, in the United Kingdom, but in the United States, I'm pretty sure that you can get cocaine at a cheaper price and you can get the raspberries that they're selling over there in the store. That you live in a world in which people have decided that raspberries are forbidden. Let's look together in these halachot here. On page three, halacha number one. You mentioned minhagim. Halachot always told us this is one of the oldest Sephardic minhagim. And then when talking about our minhagim, we should never abandon this minhag. Just tell them it's not a halakha. Just tell them it's a minhag. Because today nobody respects halakhot. But you tell them you have a minhag. Okay, minhag is very important. Minhag, the letters of Gehenom, you know all these games. Uh, so now this is a minhag, which is very important for us to keep. The Rambam writes in the Mishnah Torah, in the laws of Ma'achalot Asur. Hamitarachet al-ba'al habayit. Somebody who is hosted by someone else. Bechol makom, in any place. Uchozman in any time. So nobody should tell me ah the times have changed in the Ramban wrote the forever. And the host brings you wine or basal or meat or givina or cheese, the a slice of fish. Why is the Ramban mentioning these particular foods? What's special about them? They have to be from a Jew. This is a very sensitive food items. It's not like a banana or a, or a a raspberry, right? And so this is something that really wouldn't be allowed. And these are things that there are halachot involved in their kashrut. Says the Rambam, it is permissible to eat these foods. You don't have to ask about the host. Even though you don't know this person at all. You know your host is Jewish. I know my host is Jewish. I can eat his food. Now, there's obviously an exception to this rule. Let's read the next sentence. And if we know for certain that this man does not keep kasher. Listen, there are people in our lives that we know. They're not shy. They're not embarrassed. They don't keep kasher. I know someone is very happy to take pictures of the octopus that he eats in restaurants. Fine. So I know this guy doesn't eat kasher. Fine. It's not particular in these areas of halakha. It's forbidden to accept an invitation. To eat by him. But if you already accept the invitation and you're eating in his home, you don't eat meat and you don't drink wine until a kasher person tells you ah, this food is kasher. 
now you can eat it. What are you not allowed to eat in the second person's house? What did the Rambam say? Meats and wine. Meats and wine. Meats and wine. What, what about raspberries? Now, I want to explain to you what, what I'm telling you. I once went to someone's home here. I went to visit them. An old lady was sick. She comes from Hamadan. You know, Hamadan is in Iran. The Jews of Hamadan, it's Shushan. The Jews there are a special type of religious. They're, uh, they probably wouldn't eat in my house. Let's just say that. Yeah, they're very particular about Kashul. And I went to go visit her. And I was sitting in her home. She doesn't observe Shabbat. So disclaimer, observe. She comes up in a Knesset, but she comes in a car. Yes. But she comes every single Shabbat to hear the Torah, to pray Shachit, and Musat, and Mirchat, with more Kavanah than the rabbis of the And she, she, I went to her home to visit her. It was Pesach. Listen, Pesach, I wonder I came to her house, and she made now, uh, someone who speaks far is going to tell me out. I think it was Sabzi Polo. It was a uh, rice with green herbs and uh, uh, fava beans and oh, yeah, delicious. And I came to her house. I told with my wife, yeah, let's have lunch with her. We ate her food. We had her rice. We finished. At the end, she says, you know, Rabbi, I have to tell you, since I came from Iran to America, there's a rabbi who visits me every single week to collect the check. I came to visit her because she was sick. He comes to collect the check. She comes, he comes every single week. And every single week, I put out fruits and things. I know he doesn't eat my food. I put out fruits. And every week he takes an orange, and if I don't have a paper plate, he'll peel the orange in his hand so as not to put the orange down on my glass plate because that would make his uh, orange not touch it. They've never had a rabbi come to my house since I came from Iran who just ate my food because he trusted me that my food was kosher. This is our minhag. What do you want from me? By our communities, we trusted each other. Somebody asked me, what makes, what, what makes your community special? It makes that community special. I'm the only community in this entire city in which every single person in this community eats at everyone else's house. That shouldn't be a, a bragging right. But that means the people that are observant, the people that are not as observant, all of us know that when it comes to Kashur and we host each other, we care exactly the same way. When I first was in, uh, dating my wife, I took her to meet my aunt, my mother's older sister, Esther. My aunt Esther lived in actually a little village outside of Haifa. Now it's a town. It's a town outside of Haifa. And uh, my aunt, she's as traditionally Sephardic as anyone else you know. She goes to Bedeh Knesset to hear the Torah reading. And she, but she doesn't keep everything the way that maybe uh, the chief rabbi does. Yeah. I went to her house and I ate. And my wife, it was the first time she ever went to someone's house who was not fully observant and ate food. And she just asked me afterwards, not to offend anybody, said, can you tell me why we're able to eat in their house? I said, why? Two reasons. Because my aunt Estelle, even though she doesn't necessarily keep Shabbat, she keeps kashet. Kashut is something that she cares about very much. So I trust her in matter. Old mom says, only if they're not considered they're not particular about these matters. She's particular about these matters. My aunt only buys chalak bet yosef meat. I'm not even sure I would do that. She does that. And second, because I trust my family. I trust my aunt that she would never feed me something that I wouldn't be allowed to eat. That level of trust goes two ways. And we unfortunately are in a relationship with some of the people who we can't trust them, and they don't trust us, and so it's a miserable relationship. But I trust my aunt. In fact, later, many years later, when I took my kids to visit my aunt on Shabbat, she put up a plata, heated up food for me, and she told me, said, listen, you know that? these schnitzel you can eat, and those you can't eat. I said, what's the difference? That one has pig in it. This one I heated up in a microwave on Shabbat, and this one was on the plata. And I said, thank you for telling me. 
I can trust my aunt to tell me what I'm allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. One, can we eat in other Jewish people's homes? Yes. Are there things that we should be careful about? Maybe depending on the person. But there is no person in the world, at least not in your community, who prays next to you that you can't go to their house and eat something. So you're not going to have a ribeye steak? Fine, so have some pasta. A second halakha, and these are random collections of halakha from different places, no order and no reason to them. Waiting between meat and milk. There's a narrative, especially in the Ashkenazi community, that somehow those of us who follow Shukhan are more lenient than everybody else. And that we have something to apologize for. Our standards of kashrut are, are so miserable that we should understand why people don't eat at our homes or come to our weddings or whatever else might happen. Let's look at halakha that we all know of, waiting between eating meat and milk. I wish I had time to elaborate on this one today, not as much as I would like, but the simple understanding is that the Torah prohibits us from eating meat and milk that were cooked together. Are we allowed to eat meat and milk that were not cooked together? So let's say a hamburger that has cheese grilled onto it is a biblical prohibition. What happens though if someone offers you a salami and cheese sandwich? Kosher salami, kosher cheese. Are you allowed to eat that sandwich? On a Torah level, that sandwich is kasher. Our rabbis prohibit us from eating the sandwich. It's a rabbinic prohibition. Our rabbis want to step further. And they discuss how much time you have to wait after eating meat in order to then consume dairy. So that in our mouths or our stomachs, there are different understandings here. How much time has to elapse before we're not eating meat and dairy together? And there's a rabbi in the Talmud. He says that I am vinegar. The son of wine. What is a vinegar, the son of wine? Because my father used to wait 24 hours between meat and milk, and I only wash my mouth out between meat and milk. The Rambam understands the sugya to say that we need to wait six hours. Why? You can analyze this at a different time. Maran writes the following words, Shukhan of number source number two on page three. Achal basah, if you ate meat, afirush al even chicken, lo yochal givin you cannot eat dairy afterwards. Until you wait six hours. And even if you waited six hours and you still have meat stuck in between your teeth, you have to remove that. That is the serenity that Maran here adds. Uh, he's trying to rule like two different opinions at the same time. And then we see the Ramah. So Sephardic standard is to wait six hours between consuming meat and milk. The Ramah writes the following. Some say, who are these some say? The Tosafot. You don't have to wait six hours. At the moment that you finish you eat a little bit of bread in your mouth, you wash your hands to clear out the flavor and the, the residue, and right away you can have ice cream after your ribeye steak. That was the practice of the vast majority of French and German rabbis until very recently. By the way, the French and German rabbis were amazing. They didn't wait after me. They had all kinds of cheeses and wines and all kinds of amazing things that they enjoyed in the world that we wouldn't be allowed to do because of the Rambam And somehow we still get the reputation of being lenient in Halakha. Yes, now the next one. Rambam says another. That's not, though that's too radical for the Rambam. The simple customs. The Rambam is living in Krakow, Poland, a few hundred years ago. And the Rambam is telling you what was the custom of all the Ashkenazim in our communities. To wait after eating meat and milk one hour. 
Now today they tell you that's a Dutch custom. The Dutch Jews wait one hour. I don't know what the Dutch Jews do or don't do. I can tell you that all of that Ashkenazim that today will tell you that you can't eat, they can't eat in your home. All of their great grandparents waited only one hour between eating meat and milk. And then the Rama adds, there are those who are extra particular to wait six hours. And that's the right thing to do. You see that even when it comes to eating meat and milk and waiting after the milk and the meat, that there are different understandings of how this halakha works. There are times, by the way, brings a fascinating situation of a woman who's craving food. She just had meat. She's craving dairy. Could you just tell her, listen, you could wait an hour. It's not the end of the world. You're violating here. It's a rabbinic decree on top of a rabbinic decree. is not even certain. He said if he was around with the Rambam, he would argue with the Rambam, why did he even codify this as a law? It's already a stringency that our Chachamim don't allow us to eat cold dairy with cold meat. Now they added also separating meat and milk. That's already an exaggerated. Fine. They said, okay. Marando writes the next halakha. And this next halakha is something that you'd be very hard-pressed to find even a Sephardic Jew doing. Aside from here. We do it here. I'm not embarrassed that we do it here. But you'll be, you'll mention this to the next super Sephardic rabbi you meet and see what happens to you. Maran writes in halakha number four. Achal tafshin shel basa. If you ate, what is a tafshin shel basa? Cooked dish with meat in it. Right. So it's a it's a cooked dish that has meat in it. There are those who incorrectly understand this. It's food that was cooked in a meat pan. That is not a tafshir of basa. Yeah, let me give you an example of food with meat cooked in it. Chicken soup. You have chicken soup. There's chicken floating in there. But right now, what did you want to do? You want to just carrots and celery. You take out the carrots and the celery. You want to have tafshir to the basa. It's flavored by the chicken. It's cooked with the chicken. You want to eat that? No. You are permitted right afterwards to eat food that was cooked with cheese. Not cheese, food that was cooked with cheese. What does that mean? Give me an example of food that was cooked with cheese. You take your pizza and you scrape the pizza off, the cheese off of it. You just want to eat the dough. Or you want pizza crusts. I don't like pizza crust. They're going to make a crustless pizza. But, but my wife, just the crust is good enough for her. So it works out. It's a symbiotic relationship this way. You see a pile of pizza crusts, and you want to eat them. No cheese in them. You want to eat them. Now, I'm not talking about pizza crust of dairy and the dough. Don't get ideas here. I'm telling you, it's a pile of that pizza crust that had cheese. You want to eat that? You're allowed to eat that after you have the carrots and the celery from the chicken soup. And to wash your hands between them is an option. You don't have to do that. That doesn't sound like so groundbreaking, Ms. Halakha. Who eats this pizza crust after eating carrots? Listen carefully. But if you want to actually eat cheese, dairy after you eat the food, the, the chicken soup. After you drink, I'm going to make it worse for you. You drink the broth, the clear, strained broth of chicken soup. Right after you finish. And you wash your hands. You're immediately allowed to eat cheese after you drink a whole bowl of chicken soup as long as you didn't have any chicken. Maran rules that as a I know, I saw what the Raman writes. I know what the Chidah writes. I know, don't, don't be scared from it. I'm telling you here, Halakhan, it's written as Shukhan The next rabbi, oh, we follow Shukhan Ask him, would you allow me, after drinking clear chicken soup broth, to then have ice cream, yogurt, 
mozzarella cheese sticks, whatever it is. Agafel's always said that we're very, we, we follow Shukhanul here, and we're also careful not to cheat on our taxes. Other people, they're careful here uh, about this halakha, but they all cheat on their taxes. So you don't have to be worried that you're somehow less observant than the people who don't do this. Section C. But those of you who are writing questions, I can either take them at the end or if there's anything you feel needs to be called out, you're welcome to, to pull that up. Washing dishes together. You go to someone's house. People come to my house all the time. And they look at my sink. And it works. I live in a house that very religious people used to live in before me. I rent. And I at least have a meat sign and a dairy sign. My mother-in-law, she lived in the well shed and the chitat, for real. Between the meat sink and the dairy sink, so splatter doesn't go between both sinks. I once had a rabbi tell me a whole story how the sink got plugged up and the sewage came up and that made all the dishes not kosher. They had to kosher the whole kitchen. Okay, I'm talking now, in my house, I have two sinks. Don't judge me. Uh, judge me favorably. The two sinks are only there because very religious people used to live there before me. It was up to me. I would build a house in one big sink. Why? Because my grandparents had only one sink and my great-grandparents had only one sink. And before that, they were all washing things in the same river. So they had one river. They didn't have a meat river and a dairy river. Uh, but that, that was, uh, we all had one sink. Now it says, Maran here, this is Meat uh, bowls. Now, where do you wash pots in the olden days? You want to get hot water. So give me the scenario of your sink. What is your sink 200 years ago? Or Maran's generation. You have a huge pot, one of those catering sized pots. You heat it up on the stovetop with water. And now you wash your dishes in that water that was heated up on the stovetop. So you take your meat bowls and you put them in that pot. But you put it in a dairy pot. And the water is so hot that it would burn your hands. Even if they're both boiling hot. And the both pots were used in the last 24 hours. We're going to talk about that in a different shiul. I mean, they're currently meat and dairy pots, even on a biblical level. It's permissible to do that. Why? Because the transmission of flavor is a permissible transmission. That's if you say, that's if you know there's no oily residue on any of your bowls or the pot. But if there was residue on the meat bowls or in the dairy pot, then you would need 60 times the amount of water. This halakha no longer sounds as exciting as it sounded two minutes ago. Read the next halakha. Maran says, it appears to me that if you put Efer, what is Efer? Ashes. Soap today is would be the definition. You add dish detergent to that water. The hot water before you put the pots in. You're allowed to ideally wash dirty dishes and meat dishes, dirty milk dishes, because you have soap. Soap ruins the transmission of flavor. It gives off soap flavor. Nobody wants to be eating soap. When I was in Yeshiva in Baltimore, they used to serve us pizza on these, uh, they would heat them up in the oven, these long metal pans. I come from a Moroccan house. We're a little particular with food. It's the problem. It's, we, we're not as resilient as other people in the world. I wish I was, but I, I was very hungry in Yeshiva. And they would heat up these pizzas, and, you know, they would take the, pans out of the dishwasher, whatever it was, and they still were coated like lemony fresh detergent on the back. They'll put the pizza on, bake them in the oven, and if you would smell the bottom of your pizza, it smelled like lemony fresh soap. That's what it was like. 
And so in that situation, that gives a bad flavor. Although everybody else could eat the pizza, I couldn't bring myself to do that. And I understand I resonate with this halakha very well. The practical application of this is if you're washing dishes with soap, your dishes are together in the dishwasher with soap. It's boiling hot water. Yes, there's residue of meat and milk. Yes, but there's soap in the water. Being that there's soap in the water, this is completely permissible. And all of these stories of people moving into apartments, I had a lady call me up once. I'm like, Rabbi, I moved to an apartment and the rabbi said, I have to replace the marble countertops because marble is absorbent. I have to get rid of the dishwasher because you can't touch our dishwasher because the rubber tubes in the back are not casherable. And ultimately, this rabbi must have had a brother-in-law who was a general contractor because I cannot understand. Aside, he wanted thousands of dollars of renovations for this lady to be able to say she had a kashet kitchen. It's not fair. It's not fair. Just the dishwasher, by the very fact that it has detergent in it, makes everything kasher. The next halakha, cooking meat and milk together. This one got me in trouble once in Los Angeles. Uh, a group of rabbis got together and wrote a letter to Haraperes about me, saying that there's a young man who hangs himself in a very high tree. I mean, they're complimenting him while denigrating me. And uh, he says all kinds of, this is a 12 halakhot, maybe 13 halakhot, that I say that are miserable, evil halakhot. And they wrote to him that it's time for him to renounce me, maybe to take my semikhan. That, that was the... And then Apelot got the letter. And I, I felt bad. My, my rabbi, I make his life miserable. I said, I'd have to get worse. And Apelot, he told me, you think I was born yesterday? He wrote back to his rabbi. He said, one, I spoke back to his rabbi. He said, one, I taught him all of those halakot. Where do you think he learned those halakot? He said, and number two, he said, I've never seen a group of rabbis with as much ignorance as between the cold combination of you together uh, proved yourself to be Amehan. Here, Maran writes to Hanaruf, chapter 108, the following halakha. You have an oven. You want to dry roast meat. Think of a barbecue. Yes, a barbecue with a lid on. You want to roast there kosher steaks with not kosher steaks. Are you allowed to do that? Says Ma'an Enzo, we don't do it. Even though they don't touch each other. So you can take a kosher steak and a not kosher steak. They don't touch each other. They're not transferring any liquids between each other. They're right there next to each other, though. The lid is going to be... Says the man, you shouldn't do that. But if you did it, it's completely permissible to eat. And even if the not kosher one was very fatty, meaning it's leaking liquids and flavors and all kinds of things that come out of that steak, and the other one is a very lean meat. It's still permissible. This oven is big. That it holds the amount of yud bet esonim. It's a large oven, not a tiny oven. And it has an opening in it. Meaning the amount, it's unlike the old school ovens where it was a sealed clay box. Yeah, there's an opening. All of the ovens that you have in your home, no matter what the size is, have ventilation. There's somewhere that hot air is coming out of. So if there is ventilation, says you can ideally heat meat because it's kosher with not kosher meat in the same oven together. We only ask one thing, they shouldn't touch each other. And if one of the meats, the kosher one or the not kosher one, the lid is sealed or it's covered in dough. So think about an empanada, boreka, some food like that. It's covered in dough. It's completely permissible, even in a small oven, even with no ventilation, to cook together kosher meat and not kosher meat in the same oven. 
So when people call me and say, Rabbi, so how do I kosher my oven? Or, ah, oh, I went to my mother's house and she heated up a baguette for me in her not kosher oven. What is a not kosher oven? A tiny oven, sealed. Let's read. Says the Maran, what am I talking about? When I'm talking about roasting foods. But if you come to cook foods in a pot or a pan, you put in your oven. You don't put steaks on the racks of your oven. You cook them in that pan. Every one of them has a pan. Yeah, they're side by side. Even in a tiny oven, and it's, there's no ventilation. Even if the both pans are unsealed, they're both open. But being that they're separate and it's cooking and not roasting, says Maran, that is completely permissible. You have nothing to worry about. So what's all the tumult about? People heating things up in their ovens, they're not kosher oven. I can't use the, the oven at work. I can't this. I can't. Where did this come from? Not from the Shulchan But it comes from somewhere. Policy, social norms, community. I, I understand. But what about Shulchan But the Ramah is strict. You know, I have to the Ramah is strict. What is the Ramah's stringency? The Ramah says you shouldn't cook these things together at the same time in the same oven. But if you want to cook them one after the other, that's totally okay. So you want to use a meat oven and then afterwards put dairy and then afterwards put meat. Malama says that's absolutely fine. So that's the Ashkenazi stringency. It's one after the next. So what about having separate ovens with separate racks? And where, I don't know. You look at me. Somebody once said, get out of my kitchen before you trafe it up with your shulchan ar. Trafe it up with your how can my shulchan make your kitchen not kasher? How could it be? Because you're an ignoramus. That's how it could be. But aside from that, let's keep going. Purchasing vinegar. I'm cognizant of the time. If anyone needs to go at any point, this recording will be available later. I want to finish this halachot with you so we can get off on a normal start next week. Purchasing vinegar. You go to a store. People always ask me, Rabbi, how do you know the vinegar inside of a food product is kasher? Maybe it's not kasher. Maybe, maybe. All the what ifs in the world. Maybe. Malan already wrote about this. All of these liquids, vinegar, it's made out of uh, alcohol. It's forbidden to buy from non-Jews. If they're more expensive than wine. You ever look at the difference between the cost of balsamic vinegar versus white vinegar? People clean their houses with white vinegar. It's so cheap. Balsamic vinegar, it's very expensive. Kosher balsamic vinegar, it's even more expensive. Meaning if the wine is too, the vinegar is too expensive, you should assume maybe it comes from not kosher wine. But if it's not, we're worried that maybe there's wine in them. But if the vinegar that you're buying is cheaper than other vinegar, then it's completely permissible. Why would someone write white vinegar on their package and instead they're offering you white wine vinegar? Ah, Normally they brag about that on the front of the package. They're not going to trick you, give you a better vinegar than the one you're paying for. The Ramam, he has a more fantastic situation. You see Every time people ask in the Pesach form, how do you know the machinery is smeared with lard and pigs are fat and every, every kosher food in the world, by the way, is because all of the machines in the world are smeared with pig fat. Just so you know, this is the narrative of every kosher organization I met in my life. And I have to tell you that it's very rare in general to find pig fat in many places, let alone smeared all over machinery, especially in an age of allergens and, and all kinds of other concerns. But let's pretend for a moment that there's pig fats, every food that you have, there's a little porky the pig peeking behind every corner. Let's pretend for a moment. Yes, the Ramah gives you such a scenario. The Ramah says, this is even true, even when we know, not that we know for sure, that the non-Jews that we're buying vinegar from, they smear their pots and their utensils with pig fat. 
You don't have to worry about the pig fat that is in the barrel of the vinegar, the, the pot of the vinegar. Why not? Why don't I have to worry about pig fat? Is pig fat kasher? Pig fat is not kasher. But what does pig fat do to my vinegar in halakha? The havin etinat ham gam gam batel b'shishim says says Rama because the flavor of the pig fat in the vinegar is not a flavor. You don't go to the store wanting to buy porky the pig flavored vinegar. That's not what you go there for. You want apple cider vinegar, not not pig apple cider vinegar. And because of that, the flavor of the pig is not a good flavor in your vinegar, and it's completely fine. And also, it's nullified in sixty. He mentions, but here you have a fascinating halacha. Even if the machinery is coated in pig fat, the pots and pans they made your vinegar in is coated with pig fat. Says Maran, it's kashit. What do you want from me? Now you want to create a situation where the pig fat is a problem? Albert Einstein said, beware of people who have problems for every solution. Maran here sharing with you clear halachot. I have to make up new halachot because you need to prove that your casual organization exists for a reason. Can I go through the page four? You're okay? Is there a question over there? Yeah, we're good? Perfect. More than okay. Wonderful. The next example that I wanted to bring to you, and these are just a random examples I collected in Shulchan Aruch. I wanted to prepare for you ideas to show you that kashrut is not what we've been taught. Purchasing oil and honey. Everything that I'm telling you now, don't run away. You didn't learn the sugya, the I'm not giving you any pesach halacha here. I'm not, just, it's for you to know what we need to learn. Yes, don't walk away with, oh, Rabbi Halevi said I can have a cheeseburger as long as I put the cheese on it afterwards. I didn't say it. I'm simply sharing with you here. Halachot. Maran writes in Yoredeham, Shemen Udvash Shel Goim. I know in the UK there's a tremendous tumult about oils. The first time I answered a question in my forum from the UK about potato chips. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that I was walking into the minefield. It's the equivalent of gummy bears in the United States. In the United States gummy bears blew up. So in the UK it was the potato crisp. Why? I have no idea. But that's, that even, and the, the, the beans, reason, the beans all, that seems to be a pet peeve and the baked beans. For some reason the baked beans are all have little piggies hiding in them also. Those two things, they made major chaos in the UK. Says Maran, you go to buy oil or honey from the Goyim. Even though they are cooked, you cook that oil, they cook that honey to pasteurize it, yeah? It's permissible. Why is it permissible to buy cooked honey from a non-Jew? We're not talking here about a non-Jewish factory that their pots and pans are only used for honey. It means... That, uh, my neighbor, she sells honey out of her kitchen. It's a little organic artisan honey shop. And the same pot that she uses to make beef, cheese, lasagna for her family, she then makes honey inside of and sells in little containers. Why is that permissible, says Maran? Because the meat, it spoils the oil and makes it taste bad. The same thing with the honey. We're not concerned with a not kosher ingredients that were made in the pots and pans when it comes to cooked foods like honey or oil. So all of this, yeah, times have changed. The machinery has changed. We all kinds of things you don't know that are lurking behind your ingredient labels. Yeah, maybe yes, and maybe you're making something up right now. And I'll tell you something very simple. And that is that every good business in the world has to prove to you that they are essential. In COVID, we had this big struggle. Which businesses are essential and which ones are not essential? And why is a synagogue essential? Well, I mean, uh, a synagogue not essential, but the bar is essential. Why? Oh, interesting uh, things that came up in the last couple of years. We have similar ideas here in halakha, but things that I wasn't talking about essential things. There's a reason I was telling you this. Ah, businesses. 
You want to prove yourself to be essential. In order for me to be essential, I have to prove to you that without me, your food isn't kosher. So it's in the interest of every kashrut organization and, and all the rabbis who work for them or studied by them. You have to understand. Sometimes interest is not financial. Sometimes it's respect. Sometimes it's allegiance. Sometimes it's other things. I'm paid to be a mashkiach on the weekends. So even I'm a rabbi in the community, but Sundays I go to turn on the oven at the bagel store. That's also my 20 buck of panasan. You want to trust a used car salesman about his cars, you take it to a car mechanic that's independent. When it comes to kashrut, I have to prove to you that my business is essential. I, I think that every customer organization should prove to you that their business is essential. It makes life easy. You go to the store, you don't have to think about how to call it, to think of ingredients, to think about, you just buy it, it's just kosher, yeah, I buy it. Fine, that's a service you provide. A service that you provide, though, doesn't mean that I must rely on you and that if I don't buy your food, then everything I eat is not kosher. That's really a different story. Now you're trying to tell me that you have a monopoly on haraka. I don't accept that. I accept that you have a monopoly on a better business model than I have, but a better halachic system than I have, that's not true. Purchasing salted fish and lemon juice, I think Rabbi Yosef again. I know he taught recently in the Chavua, and he's an hour bit in here in, in uh, the United States. He sent me these two sources to add to my, to my list, so I want to share them with you. You go into the store, and you want to buy pickled fish. Yeah, I don't like pickled fish, but some people do. Herring, sardines, whatever it might be. Tzir degim tmeim, the brine of non-kosher pickled fish. is only prohibited in a rabbinic level. So the, the pickling juice that they pickle these fish in, the non-kosher fish are pickled in, that only is prohibited in a rabbinic level. Therefore, you go to the store and you see this huge barrel of pickled fish. There's pickled crab, there's pickled shrimp, there's pickled all kinds of uh, pickled everything in there. And on top, they have pickled salmon and pickled sardines, and they all have their scales on them. Don't get us out. They're all kashel here. The pickled catfish, they're also. Take out the crab lobsters, put in the catfish. Yes. Now, are you allowed to eat the kosher fish from there? Says Malan, yes. Completely permissible. What does it mean, yes? Yes, because the brine that is there is only rabbinically prohibited. You could just take out the fish and eat it. Uh, maybe they were salted together. That might actually be a real halachic problem. Says Malan, maybe they weren't. Why do you assume malice when there's no malice? Don't assume that these fish are not kosher. This is a big problem here. You see, because part of making myself an essential kashrut agency is to assume malice everywhere. But halakha tells you not to assume malice. Why would you assume that? You're dealing with a rabbinic prohibition here, not a biblical prohibition. Biblical prohibition is a different story. When you have a doubt as to a biblical prohibition, you must act stringently. But a rabbinic prohibition? Why do I have to be so stringent? The Ramah adds what he adds. And Shukhan Aruch in Halakha 12 writes the following. May limonish. Lemon juice. Yeah, lemons are sharp. There's a citrus fruit. That the non-Jews bring. And the salted piece of the fish that they, you know, they travel from place to place selling lemon juice and fish. Lemonade and fish. And the non-Jews bring those and their utensils and their packaging. It's completely fine. Why? What about its sharp thing? They use those things. Because like everything else we said before. Everything else we said before. The Ramah writes, They bring a lot of them together. Even if they 
even if the non-Jew used a non-kosher knife, let's assume for today there's such a thing as a non-kosher knife. He cuts the fish up with that knife. So he's making all that salmon not kosher now with his pig knife, yes? Let's say he did that. All of those pieces, you know, a not kosher knife can't make things not kosher forever. It's all about passing off flavor inside of the knife, which doesn't happen with modern utensils in the first place. Let's, let's, let's uh, amuse ourselves that perhaps the knife is passing off pig flavor into the first, how many pieces of fish before the knife loses potency? Says that it's a huge barrel. So because of that, yeah, maybe the first eight pieces of fish are not kasher. Maybe. But after that, the knife is now a part of a kasher knife. You kashered it with the salmon. And therefore, all of the fish is not permissible because those eight pieces got mixed into the whole barrel. There's classic laws here of nullified in 60. It's a huge barrel of fish. There's no reason to be worried, says the And everything else that is similar to this is the same. Can I take a tangent for a minute about chocolate chips? Chocolate chips, little things you put in the cookies and cakes, yeah? People are obsessed with chocolate chips. A while ago, in the United States at least, the main brands of kasher parve chocolate chips were suddenly labeled dairy. Nothing changed about the chocolate chips. What changed was kashrut organization's policy. The policy was that in order for chocolate chips to be parve, we required that the, organ- the, the company that makes the chocolate chips would clean their machinery very, in a very specific fashion that, that the kosher organization delineated for them. And then the next run after the dairy run would now be considered palavet chocolate chips. That's how that used to work. At a certain point, the kosher organizations, let's not pretend they were looking for the money and they only bill somewhere between $500 and $1,500 an hour. Yeah, let's pretend it has nothing to do with money. They decided we can no longer rely on this chocolate chip company to kosher their own utensils. We need someone from our crew to be there every time they wish to switch the machinery from dairy chocolate chips to palavet chocolate chips. Now, a company like Trader Joe's, like Costco, like they don't care if it says, oh, you dairy, chafke, dairy, whatever, dairy. They don't care. Palve, dairy. It doesn't make a difference to them. All they need is to be kosher. They don't understand the ramifications of if it's dairy, then all these people will not be able to make chocolate chips for Friday night dinner. What's going to be? The end of the world is going to come. They don't understand the panic. And overnight, all of these chocolate chips became dairy, and everybody was told, dairy, dairy, dairy. Fine. In my house, we still have those chocolate chips or whatever you want. I don't need chocolate chips. People eat chocolate chips. Now, when it comes to maybe, maybe they don't clean the machinery well. Some guy came and told me, you misleading people, maybe the machinery was used for dairy and they didn't clean it and then they made a run of not of palavet chocolate chips and they have dairy residue in them. Let's pretend. Let's entertain them for a moment. Remember that knife that cuts the fish? The pig knife only remains a pig knife for a certain amount of time. At a certain point in time, the chocolate chips, the, how many, they make 20 million chocolate chips. The first 200,000 absorbed all of the dairy residue in the machine. Now what's left? There's now 20 million chocolate chips, minus 300,000. All of those chocolate chips are now palmet. There's no dairy in them. Ah, what about the first? They got mixed in. That's batel, like anything else which is batel. What's all the commotion about? People who are afraid of halakha, they're afraid of how to use the rules of halakha. There's one Kashrut organization proudly boasts on their websites. We don't rely on the laws of Bitul. We don't rely on it. The laws of nullifying things. I want to explain to you what it means. I don't rely on the laws of Shabbat. God forbid. Imagine I said to them. He writes on the Shulchan Aruch. 
that if something is nitbatel, let's say a cat falls into your chicken soup. It happens. Huh? And now the chicken soup is part cat, part chicken, and it's enough in there that it's batel bishishim. Let's pretend it's nullified in 60. Yes? Now someone says, yeah, I know it's kashel, but I don't want to eat it. Says that we excommunicate this person from the Jewish community. How dare you act more righteously than the Chachamim who gave us the law that we follow today? Who are you? Who do you think you are? The reason we don't do that today is you know how many Jews would be excommunicated? We'd be left just us to pray together in the Minyan. We have nobody left in the world to pray with. All of the halakhot they do that override the Torah, now what would we do? We'd be left alone. So we're not, I'm not actively pursuing the Niduri uh, approach. But I am telling you, you have nothing to worry about if you know how to work. My last example for today. My last example for today is one. I thought there was someone called me, Abba, but it wasn't me. I was so excited for a moment. My kids were learning to allow this now. Uh, what if Judaism? What if Judaism is my final example for tonight? And that is this whole idea, which if you haven't already heard the theme until now. What if this will happen wrong? And what if that's the case? And what if you don't know? So you have to assume everything is not kashel and you need someone to come and check that everything is kashel. For a different time, we'll talk about the dangers of having mashlichim inside of commercial kitchens. You see, there are laws in halakha you could rely on. Maybe it wasn't done this way. Maybe there's all kinds of speckles, all kinds of doubts. But the moment you have a halachic Jew that is standing in the kitchen, I can't rely anymore on doubts. Now things are certainly kashel or they're certainly not kashel. The mashlichim mess up all of the laws of Kashrut. But again, a different type. Not for right now. For now, let's read the following example. Malan and Shukhanavu. Kufiud Bet is all about the laws of bread baked by non-Jews. We're going to discuss this together in the coming weeks. I have an entire session dedicated to that. Says Malan, In a place where we buy bread, commercial bread from non-Jews. This is different than your next door neighbor baking you brownies. This is, you go to the store, there's a bakery, you buy bread in a commercial setting. That's the, the halakha, it's permissible to do that. Even if there are eggs that are kneaded into the dough, or they smeared eggs on the top of the dough. People do that all the time. When they bake their chalot, they brush the eggs. And sometimes you'll see at the bottom of the chalot, there's like a little scrambled egg over there. It's left. I don't know if you'll eat it, but it's left. So that now is not just bread. Now you're talking about cooked eggs by non-Jews. This is a real problem. That could be Bishalegoim. That's the next chapter, Kufiud Gimel. We have a class on that also. Maran says Mutal, it's permissible. You're allowed to buy the bread, bread baked by non-Jews, even if there are eggs inside, even if there are eggs that are smeared on the top, it's permissible. The Rama gives a fascinating example. Rama says, What are Kichlach? Have you heard of Kichl before? I grew up in a Chabad synagogue as a child, yeah? And they used to have kichol and herring. They had this, uh, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a cracker of sorts, yes? That's what they had. says in Marama, those things that are kichlach, these uh, cooked, baked, uh, sweet goods, shekorin lekach. Lekach, lekach are honey cakes. Yes? Chassidim, the Rosh they eat lekach. That's what it's called. Yes? These things that we buy, they're considered bread, meaning they're not cooked foods that are forbidden. They're baked goods, which are permissible. In communities where it's permissible to buy bread from non-Jews, they are also permissible. And we're not concerned of baked goods that are maybe cooked foods 
that are prohibited because of Bishnagoyim. But Ramah has one stringency, and wait till you hear Ramah's stringency, because this is really way out there. Uh, if people would read this about the Ramah today, they would renounce him from the community, and they would put up uh, signs about him in every synagogue. The Ramah writes, there are some type of cookies or crackers that they bake them on irons directly on these grates. And they smear the rods or the grates with forbidden fats or pigs or other such things. Why? Probably so it doesn't stick, right? They don't want it to stick to the grates. Says You should be careful not to eat those. Not the law. The mean in Ashkenaz is that we buy baked goods from our Jews, except for the ones that are uh, greased at the bottom with pig fat. Then we prefer just not to buy them. It's a mean not to buy them. Can you imagine a rabbi telling you, yeah, the baked goods in the grocery store, if they have pig, it's a mean not to eat them, but technically it might be okay. Can you imagine? But this is not the favorite part. My favorite part now is the shach. We started with the shach, we're going to end with the shach. But I wish to show you that it's not just the Faradim who thought this way. There's this mentality, Sabaradim to all Ashkenazim that another way. Even if you wanted to allow Ashkenazim to learn halakha the way they learned it, they still wouldn't reach what Orthodox Judaism has created in the last years in which we're alive. Let's read what the Shach says. You're saying that the bread that has eggs smeared on the top of it or inside of it, that is permissible? Shach gives you three problems, three halakhic problems. What if? What is this? Then it wouldn't be kasher. Listen to what he says. What are we going to be concerned about? What's the problem with eggs? What are we afraid of eggs? What might be the problem with eggs? Blood. Blood. There are blood spots in the eggs. By the way, blood spots in the eggs are a halachic problem? No. Right. Why not? It's only eggs that can be fertilized that can become chickens. Yeah, the eggs that we have now are not fertilized by anything. The egg, the blood in there, the only reason we don't eat that blood, and by the way, it's on, in some parts of the egg, the blood is okay to be, but we don't eat the blood. Why? We take out the blood. I mean, we eat the egg, we'll take out the little drop of blood. Why do we take it out? What's not Maritime. Maritime, very good. People learn how to find it well. And once you mix it all in and put it in the dough, says the shach, as Maran already wrote in chapter 66, there's no problem. Most of the eggs don't have blood spots in them. Crack your eggs, a thousand eggs. How many of them have blood spots? It's not a number. In my home, my mother checks her eggs, my father checks her I don't check my eggs. I'm not afraid to tell you that. I have nothing to be worried about. If I see a blood spot, I'll take it out. You know when last time I saw a blood spot? Never. Never. By the way, those of you who check eggs, I want to ask you a question. How do you check your hard-boiled eggs? Because I know all of those uh, religious people, oh, I check my eggs. You don't check your eggs. I sh- I'll show you every time you eat a hard-boiled egg, you didn't check an egg. There was an Ashkenazi rabbi, I think it was the Chazonish. He used to slice his eggs very thinly to look in every piece if there was a blood spot there. Unless you're doing that, you also agree with me the halakha is you don't have to check eggs. But they told you that you don't agree with me. The they told you that you have to check for eggs before you make the eggs. There's that story in the Kazakh, in the bar. I know, I heard the story too. So what? It's not a halakha. Shach says that's not a problem. There's no problem with blood in eggs. Next problem. Maybe they're using non-kosher eggs from a non-kosher animal. 
if you right now, wherever you live, any place in the world right now, you wanted to go buy not kosher eggs. Think of which kind of egg is not kosher. Uh, quail egg, uh, not kosher. I mean, uh, ostrich egg. Ostrich is not kosher, correct? Which grocery store near your house can you go buy ostrich eggs in? Very good. Says the shach, and mitzuim benenu. It's simply not logical. There are no non-kosher eggs around us. But if they were using ostrich eggs, that would be the name of the company, ostrich cookies. They wouldn't, it's not a negligible ingredient. They substitute your uh, regular chicken eggs with ostrich eggs. Says the uh, shach, you don't have to be concerned about maybe the blood for sure not, and definitely not about not kosher eggs because we're not concerned about that. And last also, Rabbi, isn't it that the ostrich eggs are huge? I mean, they're quite different. Yeah, but you wouldn't know. I don't know. Would I be able to tell the difference between dough that was baked with an ostrich egg and dough that was baked with a regular egg? Definitely not. Definitely not. So I think that's what he's telling us. And finally, the last reason. It's forbidden to eat eggs that are cooked by non-Jews. That's a halakha. As we say in the next chapter, he says the flour, the dough is the main part of this food. And therefore, the part that's the egg that's not allowed to be cooked is nullified in the part that is permissible to be eaten, which is the bread. And because of that, we have no concerns of when there is a mixture of foods that are permissible and foods that are prohibited. Somebody wants to reach out to me about some kind of hummus that had eggplant left. It's once it's batel in there and it's a permissible, then it's completely fine to eat that. And I'm showing you that the shah, which is the primary resource for Ashkenazi halakhot in any smicha program in the world, when it comes to the laws of kashrut, is telling you this what if mentality is flawed. It's a problem because you don't have to worry about all the things they've told us to worry about. And so here's what I wish to wrap up with you today. We are given an opportunity, thanks to this chavuah, to spend the next seven weeks together learning zooming into different areas of the laws of Kashrut. But one thing I need to ask you before you come with me into this journey of Kashrut, it's okay to ask any question you wish. But to consider for just a moment that maybe everything that we've been told so far about Kashrut is not actually what Judaism has to say about Kashrut. And when you allow yourself permission to think differently than we were given permission to think previously, I promise you that you will experience Kashrut in ways that are so liberating and so freeing and are so empowering for you to take ownership of a part of your life that comes up every minute, every day, every holiday, every family event, every work scenario. And so I thank you for learning with me tonight. And I really thank you in advance for coming back in the coming weeks to learn with me the things that we need to learn. And as the schedule has been sent out already, maybe the next few classes won't be as exciting as pigs mixed in with chocolate cake. But I will tell you that those are foundations that we need in order to reach the later classes that are going to be very practical in our everyday life. Thank you so much for learning with me tonight. Chazak to all of you. Thank you to Sina and to the whole Chavua for putting this together tonight. Shalom Aleichem. I'm here if anybody has any questions. I don't have to go anywhere for me. It's just the middle of the day. So I'm going to turn off the recording and you can feel free to ask anything that you want to ask. Thank you so, so much for that. Uh, what an introduction. Uh, we had 50 people at the start. We have 50 people at the end. So after 90 minutes, uh, that speaks volumes. Thank you so, so much. Really important, really foundational and fundamental things. I can't wait for the next one. I wish it was now. <laughs> uh, next so week, every Monday, every Monday, please, everybody, please do remember same time every Monday.